Morning. It's good to see everyone, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I'm going to stand down here because sit too far away. I don't like usually, um, but uh, no, actually it is really good. I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to see Devin or, or Brian, but I'm glad they're not here. It's a great opportunity that we have for uh, for um, for what they're going to be doing this morning. So uh, I pray that uh, um, that those efforts will continue. Um, Greetings from the brethren in Charleston, and it's just me. Got a look at it, Mr. Patrick, or something like that. Um, just a variety of things going on up there with, uh, with, uh, with, with those who normally come down with me. And, uh, but um, lots of good things going on. It's always a, a good opportunity to, to be here and to, uh, to assemble with you. Sister cities, sister congregations, and uh, it's, it really is a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here, and uh, this morning we are going to be talking about the resurrection. I think that's obviously on a lot of people's minds in the religious world because it is Easter Sunday, um, and that is, awareness is heightened, if you will, at this time of year about the resurrection, about the crucifixion, and there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and what have you, but we are going to be talking about the resurrection and the significance that it has for us as Christians. Because of how defining it is for Christianity, it's the entire basis of what we believe. And so we're going to be spending our time um, in, in a few different texts uh, this morning, uh, primarily 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which is a favorite, but don't turn there quite yet. Um, each of the four gospel accounts um, records Jesus' appearance after his crucifixion, after he had been, been buried, um, we see his, um, we have various accounts of Matthew and Mark, um, the women finding the, the, the empty tomb, uh, being instructed by the angel, uh, the angel to go tell the disciples, um, Jesus himself appears um, as they were on their way. Um, we have several different uh, ones in, uh, in Luke, Matthew, John, records multiple uh, accounts. Um, John chapter 20, appears to Mary Magdalene, um, to the disciples, except for Thomas, then to, to Thomas himself, um, and throughout uh, uh, chapter, John chapter 21, and then also in Acts 1, with the, the, the appearance of the 500 at the Ascension. And why that is important is, you go back to the old law, and you needed two or three witnesses to basically find someone guilty of whatever the accusation was. There were 500 witnesses. There's overwhelming proof of Christ after the dead and buried. So that's, that's why there's such, it is so huge, so, so important for us to, to understand this. And again, it is the most fundamental aspect of, of what we believe. It is the fact that supports what we believe. Um, and that's really what Paul is driving at when we get into 1 Corinthians 15. Um, throughout the first century, those who know me know me that I'm a historian. I like going back and looking at the history and, and uh, of various things. And going back through the first century, you, you, you realize some of the controversies that are going on. We touched upon them briefly in class. Uh, but, but one of them 
was this idea of Gnosticism, denying the, the, the physical and divine nature of and you mentioned that guy Brian did uh, spend a year going through uh, Romans chapter 12. I've heard preachers that will preach on, they will give an entire lesson on the first word of the first job, that. Let's talk about the physical, tangible being of Christ. And understanding this, these thoughts and these these ideas that we're driving at is so important. Throughout the scriptures, we, we see that there were those who were denying the resurrection. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and remember, 1 Corinthians is probably the second book written in the, in the New Testament. It was only written less than 20 years after, after the resurrection. So you already had people so soon denying that there is such a thing as a resurrection. And so Paul is having to combat that. And guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. We still see the same thinking today. How many different denominations are there that um, have so many people that will deny the resurrection? They will deny the divinity of, of, of Jesus. There's something like a third of Episcopalian priests deny the resurrection. I don't get that. It's like, how can you deny that when that is so central? But then you have the same brethren. You have brethren in First Corinthians. Paul is saying, you're doing the same thing. And so we have to continually go back to the beginning, if you will. And so what we're going to look at is the significance of the resurrection to two groups of people. Those who don't believe and those who believe. And I think that pretty well covers everything. So we've got two points today. Well, for the unbeliever, it verifies, the resurrection verifies the deity of Jesus. And that is, what's so important about this is it proves what Paul was saying in Romans 1. Turn over there. Romans chapter 1. We want to read verse 4. Romans chapter 1. Paul, this is kind of the end of, or towards the end of his opening statement. His opening statement is only about six verses long. But in verse 4 he says, he talks about Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God by the resurrection. That proves everything that took place. And that's what we're getting at when we talk about this. There were other people that had been raised from the dead. We Lazarus, we have several examples from, from the Old Testament. But think about what Jesus did. He raised himself from the dead. He was not raised from the dead. He, wrote, he raised himself from the dead. You see the difference? He did it himself. And that's why it was so important. And, and we have these 500 witnesses that, that Paul describes that he mentions in 1 Corinthians. There was no denying that. How many of us believe, would believe if one person said, yes, he saw the risen Christ? 
we may or may not, we would evaluate that person's credibility. A couple, maybe three people, okay, now we start to see a little bit more. 500, who's going to deny that? How could we deny those kinds of numbers? I mean, you need that one person that would say, I'm a good person. You might possibly believe it. I wouldn't, but who might? But 500, that's overwhelming proof. It also, what also gives this significance is that it demonstrates that Christ has the authority that he claims. Think back to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. His, his final instructions there, all authority has been given. Well, if you can raise yourself from the dead, you've got authority. Yep. I mean, think about that. I mean, what greater example is there to demonstrate that I have authority than being able to raise myself from the dead as Christ? And then turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. It was funny going through class this morning. You can tell I've been preaching, I've been teaching for a long time. That as we're going through some of the topics that we're discussing, but that, that would be a good one. That would be a good one to, to address and, and all that. And I've actually done lessons off the cuff based off the comments I would have made in, in, in class. Um, and I didn't do that this time. Um, I'm still not sure why I didn't do it this time. That's, such a, that's a temptation for me. And I appreciate Jason doing the, uh, the, uh, the song service that he did and tying the songs to what we'll be, be addressing. Maybe that's why I didn't really get that. Uh, um, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Actually, you know what? Let's, let's go back. Um, beginning in the middle of verse 19. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The, the resurrection of Christ proves, it demonstrates the authority that he has. As the Apostle Paul is, is describing here, he was raised, he is seated at the right hand of God. He's in that position of authority. But his resurrection verifies who he is, who he claims to have been. It verifies his truthfulness. Jesus foretold his resurrection several times. Matthew chapter 16, uh, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. And if Jesus is telling the truth in describing his suffering and resurrection, if he was telling the truth in the other things that he said, why would he lie about this? Think about this for a moment. I mean, this is, why would you lie about this? Why would this not be, be true? Because why would God raise a liar to be that once and for all sacrifice? I mean, how many times do we see in the scripture that God hates lying? It's one of the things that, that is specifically said that God hates. So why would he use that if there wasn't truth to the resurrection? First Corinthians 5 describes Jesus as our Passover. He was that, that Passover lamb. And that's one of the reasons why I like when we go through Isaiah 53 
right before the Lord's Supper, describing what that Passover lamb did for us, and understanding the death that is there. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, talking about the sacrifice that Jesus was that once and for all sacrifice for us. Taking away our sin, redeeming us. It wouldn't make sense for God to use a lot or a charlatan or anything like that to be that perfect sacrifice. It would be so opposed to everything that God has said describes him. And so as a result, we, we understand his teachings to be true. Turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He was from the Father. He spoke the words of the Father. He, he came to do the work that God had that God the Father had given him to do. He's not speaking his own words. He's not doing this on his own initiative. He's not, he's not, taking, things, not taking matters into his own hands, but he's doing the will of God the Father. No one can come to God the Father except through Christ. John 14. This is, he's teaching this, remember that the last third of the book of John is really about the events the night that Jesus is betrayed, the discussion at the Passover meal, the events leading up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. Jesus, when he is sitting there having that meal with the disciples, with the apostles, he's reminding them that no one can come to the Father except through me except through Christ himself. He went to prepare that place for us. He's going to come again. He came to, to, to give the abundant life. John chapter 10. And he also taught about the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. And the ensuing judgment. Turn back uh, to John chapter 5. Verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, and with all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So there's going to be that, that resurrection, good and bad, and that subsequent judgments. And something that we need to, to really think about is. Our concept of the day of judgment really is not the day of judgment. It's really the sentencing day. Because when this life is over, we we are already judged. There is no more case. The defense is rested, if you will. And all that's awaiting is the rendering of what that sentence is going to be when eternity springs forth, when that is when that is given. 
kind of fun to, to go back and, and look at all the legal language that's in the scriptures and, and how much judgment appears. And so much of the Bible is written as kind of a courtroom drama, if you will, to, to use, um, to, to describe that, that in terms that we would be more familiar with. Skip over to John chapter 12, verse 48. And again, more of this, this judgment language. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And then turn over to Acts 17. <coughs> Paul, he is, is, is speaking before the, the Athenians at uh, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, in verses 30 and 31. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people should, everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day which will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having purged proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It's the resurrection of Christ that judges us. And he is given that proof of who he is by raising Christ. We have confidence in that judgment knowing what God has done with the resurrection of, of Christ. So we stop and think about it. And he, if Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. For the unbeliever, his significance is once. It forces us to believe, to, to, to come face to face with reality. Most of us don't like to deal with reality. Most of us would rather kind of push things off. But it's the resurrection that, that brings that focus that we need to deal with this reality of what has actually transpired. And so there's really only two options. Either Christ is Lord, or he's not. And if he's not, then he's the greatest fraud in the history of the world. And humanity has been scammed. Think about that for a moment. What is the basis of our time? What is the basis of what year is this? It's AD in the year of our Lord. That is the basis for how we measure time. That's almost like a transformer. It was one time. I was still living up in Maryland. Um, we were stopping, my, my mom and I were sitting, we were stopping at a stoplight, and a transformer blew. Of course, I was driving her to work, and we were taking one of the cars in to service or something. And 20 minutes later, she was still shaking from how much that had, that had bothered her, um, because it was right overhead. I was going to have that sound. I wanted that a little later in the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> think about this. How many times we don't like yes or no questions? We want to kind of split the difference. We kind of want there to be a maybe. Well, that, we can't do that when it comes to the resurrection. There's either yes or no. But having talked about that, the, the significance of the resurrection for the unbeliever. How about for us as a believer? 
However, for those of us who profess to believe in Christ, and that's where really 1 Corinthians 15 comes into play. Um, and so Paul is addressing some of these false ideas that were circulating in And we have to stop and think, remind ourselves, what was the biggest challenge in the early church? It was false teaching. You realize that virtually every book in the New Testament, there is some warning, some admonition about adhering to sound doctrine, don't listen to false teaching, because some kind of warning that way. Because about every book in the New Testament, I think Philemon is the only one that really doesn't mention that. And Philemon is so short and is dealing with such a specific topic. Let's think about this for a moment. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll be spending much of our time, much of the balance of our time, dealing with, with, with Paul is addressing here. Um, he, dr- he addresses the strength of the, of the, of the witnesses. Um, and and that's, that's important because there is strength in numbers when it comes to witnesses. Because, again, if you only have one witness, well, it's easy to dismiss them. A couple, yeah, it's, we, we can dismiss that. Five hundred? Now we're getting some, some, some overwhelming proof here. Um, so let's pick up our reading. First Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. And that's a, a phrase that... that Paul will come back to again in this chapter, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one on time and born, he appeared to me also. So all of these witnesses, and not only does he say that you have all of these witnesses, he said, the last thing, you're still around. Because again, when First Corinthians was written, you're talking maybe about 18 years or so after the crucifixion. So there was, most of the witnesses that, that saw Christ after the resurrection were still alive. Paul said, go ask him. You think that's pretty powerful? To be able to say, so don't just take my word, but go ask all these people. They're still around. And then he talks about the implications. And I will tell you this. You go through chapter, go through beginning in verse 12, and all of it puts it right on the line. If, if there was no res- resurrection, we're the sorriest people that ever existed. He, he doesn't mince any words about us. It's not often that the, you read through Paul and Paul's writings were kind of difficult. This is about the easiest thing there is to understand that the Apostle Paul wrote. He himself was one of the great witnesses of the resurrection. And he, just, and he says this. Uh, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace toward me, and the grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, the grace of God with me. Whether it then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul persecuted the church. If there was one person that could be identified with the persecution of the early church, it was Paul. And to see him do that 180, to go from being the sworn enemy of the church to its greatest missionary, its greatest adherence, the one who took the gospel from this, the, the far eastern side of the Roman Empire all the way to Rome itself. In a very short period of time, by the way, shows how powerful that message is. He made it clear that his salvation was an act of God's grace. If Jesus has not been raised, then let's pick up a reading in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not even been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who, who those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be dead. So if Jesus has not been raised, then all of our preaching efforts are in vain. The preaching of the apostles is entirely meaningless, it's entirely king, you should just go home right now. Because there is no point in preaching about some liar or some lunatic, which is what Christ would be, if he didn't resurrect from the dead. Our faith would be vain. Our faith would be just as empty and meaningless as any gospel preaching when there, there was no resurrection, because our faith would be in what? In a liar, in a lunatic. Granted, he would be the most fantastic liar in history. And if you're going to be scammed, make it good. But that's not comfort to us. And I like what Paul points out that the apostles would have been false witnesses. Because look at them, they testified to the resurrection. And what are they going to say? Yeah, no, I didn't really There's a, a, a thing I saw on Facebook uh, not too long ago that Chuck Colson was one of the, uh, the uh, people who went to, to prison over, over Watergate. And he basically says that Watergate proved to him the resurrection. Because think about it, Watergate what involved a very few number of people, and none of them could keep their mouth shut. But yet you have the apostles, who not a one of them were cancer, 
when they had plenty of opportunity to do so. And that's powerful testimony unto itself. At Pentecost, the first gospel sermon, what does Peter say? That they were witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. When he is um, preaching to um, Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, he says the same thing. That they had spent 40 days with him after the resurrection, eating and drinking with him, that they were associated, they were with him. And not just, they had seen him from afar, it wasn't like some Elvis sighting and, and that, that, that Jesus was over here and then he was over here. No, they were eating and drinking and, and, and dining with him. They were, they were with him during this time. And there's no possible way they could have been mistaken. Well, we thought it was him. No, no. Their, their language is far too all-encompassing to be able to say that. Like I said, it wasn't like they, they saw him from a distance or what have you. And, no. no. There really is no in-between. This is one of those times in life where there is a yes or there is a no. And one of the other implications is if there's no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. Think about that for a moment. Whatever sins you you, you committed, that, that whatever it was that, that, that led you to wash those away, they're still there if there's no resurrection. Because how could there be a sacrifice to take away sin when there is a great sin on the part of the one claiming that? Doesn't make any sense. And that's what Paul is, is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's either a liar or a lunatic that died on the cross. And, and who could possibly be holy or, 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 or without blemish as was required under the old law? You go back to the Hebrews 10 with the, the sacrifices, the, the, the lamb, the, the, those animals that would be sacrificed and be without blemish. Wine would be a big blemish, would it not? Right? The definition of a blemish in this sense. And so all of those that believed in Christ and that had, had perished, as Paul is describing in verse 18, they're dead and gone. They would believe in the law. Their faith would have been in a, in a false messiah. And there were a lot of false messiahs during this time. There was, there was kind of a, a, something in the air, we might say, during this time. They were, they were looking for this redemption from Rome. And it's fascinating to go through the, the history of the, 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 really the first and second centuries and this, this fight that, that the Jews had with Rome. From a human perspective, none of it makes sense. None of it. And you can see the exasperation that Rome has of what are you people doing? But yet, that's what was going on. And they're looking for this relief, this deliverance in a political state, in a king just like. David had been king over Israel, a physical king. And there was disappointment over that. And so you had a lot of messiahs, a lot of people claiming to be messiahs during this time. 
And no doubt that was part of the, the Pharisees. Said, Here's another one claiming this. Such people would have had no atonement for their sins. They would have died without hope. And then finally, Christians have to be paid because we believe in that false society. I mean, think about this. What do we give up as Christians? What do we give up in this life? We give up things that we want to do. Right? I mean, how many of us are tempted to do things we don't want to do? How many, uh, I got to go sin today? No, we don't think that. It's things that we want to do, that we're drawn to do. We give that up for the cause of Christ. Wouldn't you feel cheating giving that up if there were no resurrection? I know I would. I gave this up for, for what? Are you kidding me? And that's what Paul is saying here is if we trusted in Christ, we believe in Christ in this life only, what are the sorriest people on the planet? Because we're ridiculed, persecuted for our faith. If we go back through what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, he describes all that he endured. You almost get the feeling that the Apostle Paul asked you, asked you to go on a, on a missionary trip with, with him, you say, I'm busy that week. I mean, you go back through all that he endured. Wow. And again, this was the chief persecutor of the early church. To do that, to go from that to, to here, that, that, that extreme, shows that there's something there. And it beggars the mind to think what pathetic people would be without the resurrection. So, if Jesus has been raised, and we all believe that he has, and we go through, we see the text that, that proved this, it verifies and confirms our justification. Romans chapter 4, turn over. Romans 4. Then actually, let's back up to verse 20, uh, 23, the, the very end of the chapter. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our testimony. We have that justification. We have, we're excused in a sense. When, think about what it, what it means to be justified to do something. Yes, the, the act itself is wrong, but the underlying reason for it is okay. Justifiable homicide. Killing somebody, but there was a reason for it. And that's the idea here, that, that our sin is not held against us, it's okay to blame us, and, and the charges can't stick. By raising him from the dead, God, God demonstrated his acceptance of Christ as that sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8, turn over there, Romans 8. Who is going to bring a charge against God's book? This is verse 33, Romans 8, 33. 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That justification. God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf for our sins. It also shows the power that's available to the Christian. We saw that earlier in Ephesians 1. That power that's available at our conversion. It's just the strength that enables us to keep pressing forward. To un- understand that we're imperfect. We're going to stumble from time to time. But that's the whole point of God's grace. Grace is what fills in the gap between our intentions and our quality. How many of us want to serve the Lord, right? How many of us do it all the time and we never make a mistake? We can't. Grace is what is when God says, I know what you meant to do. It's when you say, it's when, when, when the Lord can, can say, bless his heart, he meant well, and he needs that as a compliment. That's what we're talking about when we, when we talk about grace. It also gives us hope concerning our own resurrection. Because this life is not the end all, be all. We have that living hope, 1 Peter 1, verse 21. And 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about the resurrection of, of the believers. It's this hope that keeps us going during our darkest moments. When we're facing those challenges, those trials, those those difficult times, whatever they are. And they're going to be different for each one of us. It's just it's the resurrection that gives us that light at the end of the time. That there is something there. We have that hope. And it demands our loyalty. It's all we say in 189, when I survey the wondrous cross. The last verse is one of my favorite lines. For the whole realm of nature and mind. If I had the entire world, what else could I do? What else could I do? That world present far too small than what God has done for me. Stop me from that. It demands my life. It demands everything that I have. He was raised to become our Lord. Our lives, our service belong to Him. That's the significance of the resurrection for the believer. The resurrection for the unbeliever gives proof to who He claims. That's why the, the purpose, if you will, of the book of John, recording all of these things that Jesus said that he did so that we would believe. But the person's belief is, is what gives us hope. It gives us that ability to keep going, to not give up, to have that perseverance. It's more than some simple historical event. It has everlasting implications. And we can't lose sight of this. 
Do our lives reflect this? Do our lives reflect believing who Jesus is and what he's saying here for us? Do we pretend or we just kind of go along and we just play act? This is easy to do. We, it's easy to go through the motions and to sit here to do the things that we do and sing and, and all of this and just kind of go through the motions. But do we mean it? Do we live like we profess to live? And it's easy to deceive ourselves. Remember who the easiest person to fool is. You. Absolutely. Each one of us, we, we can lie ourselves to ourselves real, really well. We're good at that. We are good at rationalizing away all of these things. Because what do we do? We change the standard. Well, I'm not as bad as this guy is. That's not your standard. Standard is what God has said, what He has given us to do. In a moment, we're going to be singing Victory in Jesus. And we start off talking about the significance of the resurrection for the believer in 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's look at the last several verses, kind of Paul's point when talking about the resurrection. Beginning in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable, no nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, with the shrinking of an eye, the last trumpet. And the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. But this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the mortality. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about what, what this, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sin? The sin of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abandoned in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Think about what Paul is saying He's saying that because of the victory that we have in Christ, because of the resurrection, because of this, we can look death in the eye and say, that's what we've got. What's the worst that's going to happen to us? Somebody killed us. Great, we go to heaven soon. What's the downside to this? Show me the negatives of this. Is that all you want? Therefore, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, knowing that what? Your labor is not in vain. This idea of in vain, we see that throughout chapter 15. No. Be confident that what you're doing is not worthless. It's not meaningless. It's not in vain. 
because of the resurrection that we have to the, the resurrection of Christ, and the subsequent resurrection that we will have. Do we live our lives like we say we do? Do we do it like we mean it? If you need to change, if you need to repent of sin, do it now. Because like Paul was saying, in a moment, we change in the twinkling of an eye. In, in that moment, at some point, that switch is going to be flipped, if you will. And that's really what the scriptures are driving at, is this idea of repentance. Changing our will to align with that of God. Do we do it like we mean? If you need to obey the gospel call, you need to be baptized. If you have repented and you need that baptism, do it now. Because again, in a moment, you change. You need to make yourself right with the Lord. If there's anything we can help with, come and stand and So I'm very good at that.